Good morning. Uh, Would you take out your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27, and we'll read beginning in verse 45 here in just a moment, Matthew chapter 27, uh, beginning in verse 45. Uh, I'll join with Sean in welcoming you here this morning, Uh, and while I can't think of a better place for you to be uh, than among God's people uh, to worship Him and to study from His Word, you still made a choice to be here. Uh, and I appreciate that and know that God notices that. And especially to our visitors, we're grateful that you've chosen to come and be with us uh, this morning. We'll be in Matthew chapter 27, uh, but before we read that, one of the most powerful, both literally, physically, and symbolically, Things that we see happen when Jesus was crucified was the veil of the temple being torn from top to bottom uh, right at the moment of his death. And that's recorded here for us in Matthew chapter 27, uh, beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness all over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is... My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then... Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the slain saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. Several months ago, uh, maybe years ago, you'd have to ask him, I guess, Joss Adams did a Lord's Supper talk where he described the tearing of this veil in the temple like someone tearing a piece of paper from top to bottom, ripping it in two. And that's kind of rattled around in my mind ever since he uh, gave that Lord's Supper talk. Um, And that is no small and insignificant feat that this veil or curtain or carpet, we might call it, was torn in two. In the days of Jesus, the veil, uh, the curtain that separated the the holy place from the most holy place was larger and grander and thicker than even the veil that was there in the days of Solomon. It was likely 60 feet high, covering not just the door, but the entire wall between the, the holy place and the most holy place. It was believed to be four inches thick, which is about that thick. So 60 feet tall, four inches thick. According to tradition, it took dozens of priests in order to get it up into place so that it could be hung between these two places. It was an incredible thing for this woven piece of fabric that was woven according to the Old Testament and according to uh, sources from the first century. It was woven with finely woven threads of purple, blue, and crimson yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim worked into its design. 
Uh, when I was in elementary school, either fourth or fifth grade, and, and I don't know if this was something unique to children of the 90s or if this is something other people have experienced as well, there were these strong men who came and, and visited the, the local campus at our elementary school. Anybody else had that experience? They, they came to talk to you about not doing drugs and having a positive attitude and all these sorts of things. Looking back, I wonder how many of them were on steroids when they were doing this because because they would come and they would lift all these giant weights, you know, and they were showing how strong they were, and then they'd take the mic and they'd tell you, don't do drugs, kids, and all these sorts of things. But the grand finale of all of this was a guy ripping a phone book in half, you know. And I remember, you know, I was, I was fourth or fifth grade, so I was watching this kind of like the way you watch a magician. I was like, what are they going to do with that phone book? And I noticed that it was already kind of cut a little bit, and it was all just a giant letdown because this guy with these huge muscles, he starts working on it and the music's pumping and he's working and he's working and he's working and, and he wasn't able to do it. And so he had to take like half the phone book and rip it in half and then rip it again. And that phone book was a lot less than four inches thick. And it wasn't woven with all of this thread. And to think 60 feet to be torn in two in a moment, as the earth quakes around them, how terrifying must that have been to the priests who were likely in the temple at this time. By the time of Jesus, um, this particular veil had not been up for very long, but it, it held almost a mythical status among many of the Jews. We have a number of legends that are recorded in extra-biblical text about it. One such legend found in the Dead Sea Scrolls describes how the woven cherubim would come to life at different points in the veil and they would literally sing praises to God. The historian Josephus, who was from a priestly line of the Jews, describes the veil as it was made with marvelous skill of a Babylonian tapestry embroidered with the panorama of the heavens upon it. It was this item. This curtain, impossible to tear or cut in two by men, and rich in both biblical symbolism and extra-biblical legend that was torn in two from top to bottom, as if God Himself had reached down and torn it. And so, the question that's been rattling around in my mind that I've been able to answer in a vague sort of way, but I wanted to answer with more specificity, is this. Why? Why was the veil torn in two from top to bottom, as we read here in this account in Matthew? Well, it's interesting that this event is recorded in all of the synoptic Gospels, in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, but none of the Gospel writers give us a reason. They just say this happened when Jesus died. But I want to suggest this morning that we are not left to just our own supposition. There are hints given to us in the biblical text. And so may I suggest four reasons this morning, two negative reasons and two positive reasons why the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And this is not just some intellectual exercise. This is not just you humoring Reagan to answer a question he had a question about. May I suggest that this tearing of the veil of the temple has direct implications and consequences, ramifications for you and me who want to serve God and have a relationship with Him today. So let's see if we can answer that question and then make some applications. The veil torn in two by God was torn in two by God because of these four reasons. First are two negative reasons. Because of God's sorrow. Because of God's anger. 
In preparing for this lesson, I, I thought about different things that people might tear into or things that I've torn into, pieces of paper and those sorts of things throughout my life. Uh, and the most embarrassing of all of those, I think, was when I was a junior in high school uh, and I was expecting to make this all-star team in basketball uh, and uh, the, the list was put up uh, outside a locker room and I looked on the list and my name wasn't on the list. And so in a childish, petulant sort of act, I just went like that to the list. And uh, I felt really bad about it after a little while. And I went the next day and apologized to the coach and so forth. But generally, I think that illustrates if we're tearing something in two, it's not because we're happy as a general rule. It's not because we feel good about what has taken place. And I think certainly we see that aspect with God in what He does here. It's motivated it's motivated by negative emotions in some way. The tearing of, of things, and specifically the tearing of fabric, the tearing of clothes, has always been a sign of strong emotion in the Bible. Emotions like sorrow or anger or indignation or pain, reaction to sin, disappointment in others. And it is interesting that we see that happen earlier in these events the night before in the trials of Jesus that there, were, there was a fabric that was torn in two back in Matthew chapter 26. Well, you go back just one chapter to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 63. Jesus has been betrayed. He's been arrested. Um, he's gone before His first trial of the Jews. This is his, now His second trial before Caiaphas and then the Sanhedrin. And they're questioning Him. And in all this questioning, verse 63, it says that Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to Him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, in one of the most direct answers to this question he ever gave, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest, notice, tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy! What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, He is deserving of death. What a show this was. For the priest to tear his clothes in this way, to grill Jesus trying to get him to confess to being the Son of God, which he was. And then in anger over the blasphemy to tear his own clothes in that moment. Surely we see some echo with what God is doing at the death of his son. God is responding in the same way to the true blasphemy of this event. The greatest blasphemy that could be done. The killing of the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of the Jews. At the hands of the very people who had been waiting on him, as we studied in Bible class. For 2,000 years. What's even more significant to me is that since Jesus died about 3 p.m., we see that back in verse 45, that this is when these events were taking place in Matthew 27 and verse 45, the ninth hour, 3 o'clock in the afternoon for us. You know what happened at 3 o'clock in the afternoon at the temple? Well, that was when they began the evening sacrifices. And it is likely that there were priests who were offering incense in the holy place, when the veil was actually torn in two. 
They would have seen this event happen with their own eyes, and their experience would likely have immediately been communicated to what was likely a large crowd outside of people who were in Jerusalem for the Passover and would have been at the temple at this time. How could those who have seen it, how could they have reacted with anything but fear and an immediate connection to the anger of God against them? You see the veil of the temple torn in two with your own eyes. I don't think you're going to think God's happy with you. And Matthew doesn't tell us if this tearing at Christ's death inclined any of the priests toward the kingdom. We know that the centurion and those soldiers around him were like, look, this man is the son of God, or maybe a son of the gods. This guy is who he claimed to be, is basically what they were saying. And perhaps the same thing happened with some of these priests who were there and knew of this veil tearing in two, who saw it happen themselves or saw the aftermath in the days that followed. We do know from Luke's account in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, that a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith and might indicate that connection. God tore the veil of the temple as one tears his clothes in his anger and his sorrow. You know, we think about, we think about Jesus' prayer in the garden. I do, probably you do too, and how Jesus asked that this cup pass from him. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And it was the will of the Father that Jesus be crucified as a sacrifice for sin. That doesn't mean that it wasn't hard on him, that it didn't hurt him, and that he didn't react in sorrow when his son died. The veil was torn in two by God because of God's sorrow, but also because the covenant had been broken between God and the Jewish people. We think about this for a second. Um, I made a copy. I promise this is a copy uh, of my marriage license. I realize now, I hope this is valid because I think this is actually my handwriting of William H. Reeves on here. Um, He was the one who performed our wedding ceremony. Uh, Imagine for a moment that Stephanie comes with the real thing, and she goes like this to me. I mean, how am I going to feel? How am I going to react to that? What does that communicate? Well, it communicates that this relationship's not doing well, right? Right? Uh, Maybe even that it's come to an end. Now, she hasn't done that. She won't do that. But I think God is communicating something similar. The veil was torn in two by God because He's communicating that the covenant has been broken by His people. The covenant, their special relationship in many ways has come to an end. And we see that, of course, with the Hebrew writer and what he says in Hebrews chapter 8. Would you turn over there with me? Hebrews chapter 8. If you want to mark your spot, actually, in the book of Hebrews, we're going to be spending really most of the rest of our time in the book of Hebrews because the Hebrew writer talks about the veil of the temple and he talks about Jesus' relationship to it. In Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 7, For if that first covenant, the law of Moses, had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, quoting from Jeremiah, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers and the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Why? Because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. 
Uh, drop down to verse 13. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first, that first covenant, the law of Moses, obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And what is the very next thing that the Hebrew writer does in the text? Well, if we look down into chapter 9 and verses 1 through 3, he describes the tabernacle, including the veil between the holy place and the most holy place. Then indeed, verse 1 of chapter 9, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. We might call it the holy place. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. And so we see that God's people have broken this covenant. And so he is ending that covenant, and the veil being torn in two represents that ending. And that's a negative thing, obviously. But may I suggest that there's also a positive aspect to this. The veil, torn in two, the veil was torn in two by God because the price had been paid and the covenant fulfilled, not just ended because of the disobedience of the people, but fulfilled because of the sacrifice given by Christ. The agreement is concluded, the contract taken out of the way. And if we drop down a little further in our text in Hebrews chapter 9, we see this as well. Um, It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices, this is verse 9, are offered which cannot make him who performed the sacrifice perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with the foods and drinks, various washings and freshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood, notice, He entered the most holy place, once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot from God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We see that this covenant was being fulfilled, uh, that Jesus is making the sacrifice by which He could enter the most holy place. And notice if we go back to chapter 8 and verse 10 as well. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people." None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. This was not just the destroying of the Old Covenant. It was the fulfilling of the Old Covenant in Jesus' blood, as Jesus Himself promised in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, at the beginning of that sermon, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And that's exactly what Jesus did. I think we see this clearly marking your spot in Hebrews. Go back to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. 
in describing our transformation in coming to Christ, Paul says this to the church in Colossae, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Notice verse 14. Having wiped out, New King James says, the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now the footnote there in the New King James says, the certificate of death with its requirements against us. If you're reading from the ESV, it says this, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so again, when we think about tearing something in half, we usually think about it in a negative sort of way. Uh, But I have here a a copy of my, my mortgage agreement. Let's imagine for a moment that a representative of this bank, uh, which has changed hands a number of times since we made the original agreement, a representative of this bank came to my house and opened the door and he says, I've got good news for you. And he takes this agreement and he rips it in half and he says, it's all been paid by a third party. Well, I'd be pretty excited about that, wouldn't I? May I suggest that that's exactly what God was doing in many ways in tearing the veil of the temple in two? Yes, he's upset with his people and that they have broken the covenant. But there is also the sense that when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, that he is fulfilling that covenant. And the, the legal record of debt that stood against us, which we could not fulfill, he has nailed it to the cross and he has paid the price that was required of a perfect sacrifice in blood. And so because of that sacrifice, because of his sacrifice, We can be forgiven. And that brings us to the last reason, and all of these other three reasons are in some way secondary to what we've saved for last. The veil was torn in two by God because the barrier to fellowship with God had been removed. Uh, One more illustration of ripping something. Are you tired of me ripping things yet? Uh, My great-grandmother, who I knew until I was 10 years old, Uh, was a a daughter of the Depression. She grew up in the Depression. She was a a teenager during those years. Uh, And it was funny the way that was represented in her life in so many ways. Uh, She, uh, we were out in West Texas, and and in the, there was the Dust Bowl in the Great Depression there, and so water was so scarce. And even in good times when there was lots of rain, she would wash her dishes in this bowl. Uh, And she wouldn't allow the water to go down into the to the drain. She'd put it in this bowl and then she'd take that bowl and she'd carefully water all of her flowers. She she never threw anything away. Uh, She kept food in the refrigerator for weeks and weeks, it seemed like, and they would eat every single bit of that. But also when it was time for birthday or Christmas, when it came to wrapping paper, maybe you know people like this, maybe you are one of these people, she would very carefully find the tape and she would take the tape off And she would very carefully try and do that. And the purpose for that was because she wanted to save the wrapping paper for another occasion so that she could wrap something else for us. Now, us kids, what did we do? Well, this is what I want, and this is my present. I'm just going to rip it up and to get to what I want, right? This is a barrier between me and what it is that I really desire. I think the most powerful image that we see with this veil being ripped is that the barrier between us 
and what we really want, and between God and what He really wants has been taken away. The veil was a reminder of that barrier between God and man, what God and those who love Him both desire, and that is real fellowship and holiness. And the ripping of the veil shows that that kind of fellowship is now possible. If you turn back to Hebrews chapter 9, um, notice in verses 6 and 7. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Now under the old system of the law of Moses, there was this physical barrier, a veil or a curtain. And that was a visual reminder of how little the people, even the people of God, even the priests of God had access to and fellowship with their God. Only the high priest could go past that inner veil, and he could only do it once a year. He could only do it after extensive sacrifices had been made for the people and extensive sacrifices had been made for himself. And, and even then, when he went through the veil, we see extra-biblical writings that the high priest did this with great fear. There was always the danger that they didn't do something right and that God was going to strike them down when they went through the veil. And so there was access to God and fellowship with God. But it was not close or intimate fellowship. It was not total or easy access. It was extremely guarded and limited. But this barrier was torn in two by the work of Christ and dying on the cross. As we read a second ago in verse 11, But Christ came as high priest of good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is not of this creation. Not with the blood of, bu blood of bulls and goats, but with His own blood He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And that was clearly seen in the veil being torn in two from top to bottom. Later, the Hebrew writer sums all of these things up in chapter 10, beginning in verse 10. Will you read that with me? And then we'll make some applications. By that will, that is the will of God in wanting these things to happen and, and requiring these things, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, can never really take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, those of us who are being made holy by God. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after He had said before, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put My law into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then He adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Another offering isn't necessary because Jesus has made the offering. Verse 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness, to enter the holiest, the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil. Hear that? Through the veil. That is His flesh, His body that He offered 
on the cross. So the Hebrew writer is using the veil as a picture of how we can approach our true fellowship with God as Christians. Just as somebody, the high priest, had to go through that inner veil to get to the most holy place where God's presence dwelt between the cherubim, an earthly representation of heaven. In the new covenant, we have to go through the body. The body, the flesh, he says, of Jesus, which was offered as a sacrifice for our sins. That's the way in order to get into the presence and fellowship with God. With our sins forgiven, we can come into God's true presence in heaven. And we come not with fear like the high priest who's afraid he's going to be struck down. We come with boldness, verse 19, with confidence to stand before our God. The access we have to God is a new and living way, verse 20. It's new in the sense that this way didn't exist before. It took Jesus' sacrifice. And it is living. Because we come to God not through some dead thing, like a veil or even like the blood of a dead sacrifice. We come through the living person of Jesus Christ, who is living and will be living forever. The veil was torn in two to show us that there is a new and living and better way to God where real access and fellowship is offered, but it is only through Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. As he himself said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to access the Father, to have fellowship with the Father, except what? Through me through His sacrifice and the relationship we establish with Him. And God tore the veil of the temple in two to show us that in a powerful and vivid way. So, we draw our lesson to a close this morning. We see these four whys the veil was torn in two. Let's end with one more why. Why does it matter? Why should you care? about all of these things that we've talked about. Well, let's keep reading. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 21. And having a high priest over the house of God, three things. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Number two, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us, number three, consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Why does it matter? Well, so that we can draw near. And that's my admonition, my application. Let us draw near. Yeah, I stole it from the Hebrew writer, but it's the right application to make. Now, I want to be careful about how I say this. I I wrote this in my notes, and I I worked on it a little bit, and I said, man, that is awfully harsh. And there is a but coming to what I'm about to say. There's a but coming, okay? But this first part needs to be said. Sometimes I see and I hear people uh, express something along the lines of, Christians express something along the lines of, Why does God seem like such a harsh, angry God sometimes? Or even, you know, I don't know if I can serve a God if He is this harsh. Or maybe, personally, uh, I feel like God is angry with me. Can we all acknowledge 
that the answer to that might be, yeah, maybe so. Let's keep reading for just a second. This is the last thing that we'll actually read. Verse 26, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Jesus' sacrifice is all there is. There's not another one coming. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law that he's talked about with this tabernacle and the temple and all of that dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? We know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If you are sinning, not out of weakness, but out of stubbornness and rebellion, if you know what's right, but for some reason you refuse to do what is right, if you choose to place a clear sin, and and I know it's sin, but I'm going to do it anyway above what God has called you or me to do, then yes, God is angry. And it is a fearful position to be in. And I do not envy it. You need to know that truth and not ignore it. But, I told you there was a but coming. If your heart and desire to please God is true, He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. If you want to do what's right, but sometimes you fail, if like Paul in Romans chapter 7 and verse 24, you're crying out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I have good news. Verse 25 says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. God's sorrow over your sin, His desire for you to come back to Him, His willingness to forgive you is so much greater even than the wrath of God. Even than His anger. He is the loving Father who is waiting in hope for His children to return to Him. And what He's telling you is the veil is gone. The barrier is gone. You can actually really be made holy and sanctified. You can have a relationship with Me. You can go to heaven and have confidence and boldness that you are. And I call on all of us to draw near and have confidence in Christ, His sacrifice, His flesh, not our own righteousness but at the same time striving to walk wherein we've attained, as Harold always says, to put on and imitate Christ, to ask the question in all things, does this please God, and walk according to the answer. And what we do, and what we think, and what we wear, and what we read, and what we watch, and how we treat other people, and the priorities we have in our life, I thank Daniel so much for the songs that he led. May we draw ever nearer and have a desire to draw ever nearer to God. And the great thing is we can because the barrier has been torn 
in two. The standard of perfection is gone. Jesus nailed it to the cross. And you can have boldness and confidence if your heart is renewed and your body is washed with pure water, as he says in verse 22. And while that no doubt has echoes to the washing, the ritual washing of the priests in the Old Testament around the temple, I can't help but think of the waters of baptism. If you're not yet a Christian, even if you're a believer in Jesus, you still have to be washed to come into fellowship. And it's a different type that is used, the flood instead of the temple veil, but the terminology is the same in 1 Peter 3, verses 21 and 22. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to Him. And if you will draw near to God, then you have to try to do what's right, which brings us to our next application. Let us hold fast. Are you a Christian, but you're struggling with your walk? Are you struggling with your faith? What does He say? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Remember the confession that you made? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the tearing of the veil from top to bottom is another powerful reminder of that reality. That God is faithful. That He gave you His Son so that you might come in fellowship with Him. And if He gave His Son for you, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Romans 8 and verse 32. And then finally, why does it matter? Because we should then consider one another to stir up love and good works. I remind all of us that this fellowship extends not just to our relationship with God, but our relationship with one another. And the specific willful sin that we read about in verses 26 through 31 that was so terrible, the specific sin in the context is a refusal to come and encourage other Christians who need your love and fellowship and stirring up to love and good works. So I call on all of us to do these things. But because the veil is torn, it's not just a matter that fellowship with God is available to those who are born into a covenant. It means that anyone can choose to come into a fellowship relationship with God and gain not just a father, but a whole family, a people, a nation of others who have that same fellowship. And we still have conflict with one another, but each one of us should be doing our part to seek to resolve that conflict. Because God tore the temple veil in two from top to bottom to make a way for that fellowship. And if He can do that, He can remove whatever barriers we have between us as well. Well, those are the three things you're supposed to do. Which do you need to do this morning? Maybe like me, you could work on all three a little bit. So which do you need to do first? We can help you to do that in any way this morning. Come now, while together we stand and while we sing. I hear thy love.